In the spring of 2018, the popular evangelical pastor, Andy Stanley, he ignited a bit of a controversy when in a sermon, he commented that Christians ought to quote unquote, unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. And then months later, he released a book where he developed those comments further and explained why he thought the religion of the Old Testament and the religion of the New Testament are so radically different and why Christians should avoid trying to combine the different value systems of these two testaments, these two covenants, as he calls them. It should come as no surprise that many were shocked by Andy Stanley's original sermon comments, and many of those who read his book continued to be troubled by his explanations. But, of course, he was hardly the first person to notice the differences between these two biblical testaments, nor is he the first to suggest that, that they represent two very different understandings of salvation. In fact, this was one of the earliest and one of the most significant questions that the Christian church dealt with. In the early years of the second century, a theologian by the name of Marcion of Sinope ignited an even greater controversy than Andy Stanley by saying that the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament are so great that not only are they different understandings of salvation, they actually portray two entirely different gods. One, a God of justice, who judges people on the basis of what they do, and the other, a God of grace, who shows mercy and accepts people despite what they do. Of course, Marcion's teaching was condemned by the majority of church leaders in his day, and he was publicly opposed by some of the greatest theological minds of his generation. But it's not hard to understand why Marcion came to the conclusions that he did or why Christian leaders today continue to struggle with what to do with the Old Testament. After all, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were the people of God. But now that Jesus has come, all people everywhere are included. Likewise, Old Testament religion was based on obeying certain rules and keeping certain laws, or that's how it seems anyway whereas New Testament religion is one of grace and freedom. After all, isn't that exactly what Paul has been saying in Romans? Well, not exactly, but it should come as no great surprise that some people would read him that way. In fact, Paul himself seems to be struggling with how to reconcile the good news of this new thing that God is doing in Jesus Christ with what God was doing in the past with the history and the scriptures of Israel. And in Romans chapter 10, we see that struggle come to a head as Paul finally and directly addresses two questions that would have been not only on his mind, but on the mind of any Jewish Christian who heard what he'd been saying. First, is it true that God is doing something entirely new in Jesus? Is it true that the good news that Paul has been discussing throughout this whole letter, that the news of Jesus' death and resurrection, of how we're saved by faith and not by works, is this really a departure from what God was doing with the people of Israel? Is this a new kind of religion? Or, 
Or is it rather a continuation, fulfillment of what God was doing in the past? That's the first big major question. And a second is related to it. If what God is doing in Christ really is some kind of continuation and fulfillment of his dealings with Israel, then then why, why in Paul's day were so many of the descendants of Israel, why were so many Jews not responding to the good news that Paul was preaching? And what are we supposed to learn from their response? And those are the two big questions Paul is asking in this chapter, and, and we'll be exploring them in this session. How does the gospel of Christ relate to the message of the Old Testament? And what are we to make of this problem of Jewish unbelief? Okay, so with all that in mind, let's just jump right in. Now, one of the first things you'll notice when you read Romans chapter 10 is just how frequently Paul quotes from Old Testament scriptures. And not just one part of the Old Testament either. Jewish readers of the Old Testament, they often divide it into its books. They divide them up into three different categories. First, you have the Torah or the law, and then the Nevi'im or the prophets, and then the Ketuvim or the writings. Altogether, this is called the Tanakh, the Old Testament. In Romans chapter 10, Paul quotes and he interprets scriptures from all three of these categories. He quotes books from the Torah, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, from prophetic books like Isaiah and the prophet Joel, and also from the Psalms, which are a part of that third category of writings. But, and this is important, but by quoting from all of these, Paul's not just trying to show off his Bible knowledge. No, he's trying to make a point. He's trying to say there is a right and a wrong way to read and understand the scriptures of Israel, and that if you understand it rightly, then you'll realize, as he puts it in verse 4, that what God is doing in Christ isn't some new thing or totally different from the Old Testament. Rather, as he puts it in verse 4, that Christ is actually the end, which means the goal. Christ is the goal of the law. In other words, what God is doing in Christ is actually the culmination of everything that the Old Testament was directed towards. Now, let me explain what I mean. First, notice what Paul says in verse 2. Here he's talking about many of his fellow Jews who are rejecting his gospel message. And he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. It's easy to skim right over that statement, but if you think about it, it should give you pause. What does Paul mean by saying that these Jews have no knowledge? Surely he doesn't mean that they don't know or that they're unfamiliar with Israel's scriptures. After all, wasn't it Paul's practice to engage with other Jews in the synagogue and Weren't many of those Jews who attended the synagogue, they were very well versed in the law and the prophets. So what is it then that they're missing? What's wrong with their knowledge? In the next verse, he explains what he means a bit further when he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
That's what Paul's talking about when he says that those Jews who have rejected the good news of Christ, that they don't have zeal according to knowledge. What they don't know, what they have failed to understand is that key phrase, that, that phrase we've been talking about since the very first session. That phrase that I chose as the title for our whole study, the righteousness of God. These Jewish non-believers, according to Paul, seem to think of God's righteousness in the same way that Roman citizens thought about the quality of justice. They thought that the purpose of the law was to establish a just standard by which the just would be rewarded and the wicked would be punished. They thought of it as a list of do's and don'ts that show who's good and who's bad. And so, Paul says, they used it as a means to try to establish their own standing as a good and just person. Don't murder? Check. Haven't done that. Don't commit idolatry. Check. I, I avoid all of those idolatrous Roman sacrifices my neighbors do. Don't have any idols on my hearth. Honor your father and mother. Keep the Sabbath. Don't commit adultery. Check, check, check. That's what they were doing because they didn't understand that the righteousness of God is not the quality by which he judges how well we've performed. The righteousness of God, as Paul has been saying throughout this whole letter, is instead that quality by which he puts right our wrongs and makes us just despite our injustice. But you see, these Jewish unbelievers, they were ignorant of that. They, they didn't understand it. And so they refused, Paul says, they refused to submit to the gift of God's righteousness. As St. Augustine put it, they had a zeal for God that was misguided because they did not acknowledge God's righteousness. They failed to acknowledge the grace of God because they refused to be saved gratuitously. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say that the problem with these Jews is that they won't accept God's grace. He goes even further and he says that, in fact, if they paid attention, they would realize that this is actually how God has always been. And this is exactly what the Jewish scriptures teach. Now, to prove his point, in verses 5 to 13, Paul makes a, a biblical, pretty dense biblical argument to show that salvation has always been a gift and that the proper response to it has always been faith. Now, to begin with, in verses 5 and 6, he distinguishes between two types of righteousness. The righteousness, as he says, that's based on the law and the righteousness from faith. And at first, you might think that what he's talking about are the differences between the Old and New Testament. After all, isn't Old Testament religion based on obeying laws and New Testament religions based on faith? You might think that, but it's not what Paul says. In fact, he says that Old Testament religion is also a religion of faith. And to prove it, he quotes what may seem to be a rather strange piece of scriptural evidence. Namely, Moses' words from Deuteronomy chapter 30, where Moses is telling the people of Israel that they shouldn't think of the law as something impossible to attain, as if, as if someone had to ascend into heaven 
or make some heroic journey across the sea to secure it. But Moses says, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, Paul picks up on that little part of Moses' speech, and he suggests that what Moses is communicating is really a basic principle of how God deals with his people. God does not expect us to make ourselves righteous, to write things by some great feat. He doesn't expect us to ascend some mountain of moral perfection or embark on some grand journey of making a just society. For as Moses reminded the people of Israel, we don't have to ascend to God. He comes to us in his word to right the wrongs we cannot right ourselves. That's what he was doing when he liberated Israel from slavery and gave them the gift of a law at Sinai. And in the same way, Paul's saying, that's exactly what God is doing in Christ. He's offering us a gift. He's doing what we could not do. We didn't have to ascend to God, Paul says, because he came down to us in Christ. And we didn't have to descend to the grave and back again because Jesus did it on our behalf. Our response is simply to receive the gift that he is offering to us in faith. In fact, Paul goes on to say, that was the exact message of the prophets of the Old Testament. In verse 11, he quotes the prophet Isaiah when he writes, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then again, he offers further evidence from the words of the prophet Joel, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I hope that Paul's argument here makes sense to you. But if you're feeling confused, if all of these connections that he's drawing between the law and the prophets and the writings, if it all feels a little overwhelming, well, don't worry. This chapter is one of the most dense and complicated engagements with Scripture that you'll find in any of Paul's letters. And it's easy to lose the thread of what he's saying amidst this jumble of quotations. What's important to recognize are two things. First, once again, Paul here is adamant that the good news of the righteousness of God is not an announcement of some moral standard by which we'll all be judged. It isn't the declaration that, that God, as a righteous God, is going to reward good people and punish bad people. No, the righteousness of God is God's unwavering determination to do what we cannot do for ourselves, to free us from everything that holds us captive, to put our lives to right where they have gone wrong. That is what God was doing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And our proper response, as Paul emphasizes in this chapter, is simply to receive that gift in faith. But in addition to that message, this chapter also teaches us something else. It teaches us that the Old Testament is not some outdated religious program with antiquated ethical values and some moralistic message about making ourselves good people by obeying a list of rules. To read the Old Testament that way, according to Paul, is to read it very badly and to misunderstand it entirely. 
Instead, what the law and the prophets, all those books from Genesis through Malachi, what they communicate is the story of a God who consistently comes to his people to do what they cannot do for themselves, to bring them out of bondage, to free them from their idolatry, to make peace with them, to instruct them with the gift of a law, to strengthen their hearts through prophetic promises. That's the pattern of God's character. That's the pattern of his dealings with his people throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And it all finds its culmination in what God is now doing in Christ. So you see, Andy Stanley was wrong about needing to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. These aren't two different religions. Paul and Moses both agree. God has always been in the business of bringing salvation to his people as a gift rather than as something earned. And the right response to that gift has always been one of gratitude and faith.